I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is Reactionary Minds, a project of the unpopulist. We're used to thinking about politics as a battle between left and right, progressive and conservative. But those sides can be somewhat protean. Their positions, preferences, and policies shifting in ways that make it difficult to analyze the political landscape clearly. My guest today has a different way of framing politics, one she first set out 24 years ago, but which looks more and more prescient with every passing day. Virginia Postrel is the author of many books, including The Future and Its Enemies. Her latest is The Fabric of Civilization. The core of Postrel's framework for understanding politics isn't left versus right, but dynamism versus stasis. What does it mean to be a stasist, to use your term? What I say in the future and its enemies when I'm just laying out the basic distinctions is that dynamists, which is people like me, have a central value of learning. We can talk about that later, but that's the contrast is important. And stasis come in a couple of varieties, but they their central value is stability or control. And then I divide them into what I call reactionaries, which are the people who are more into keeping things literally the same, not necessarily the status quo. It could be going back to some imagined past or uh, creating some uh, utopia, but the idea of a stable society. And then uh, technocrats who are much more common in uh, liberal democratic uh, societies who say, well, we want progress, we want things to change, but it's got to look exactly like this. Uh, and that's and very much a an early 20th century idea of of control and planning the future so that progress becomes something not that evolves but that is dictated. When you say early 20th century and the, the rise of the, the technocratic position, is that because something new happened? in the 20th century? Or is it because prior to the 20th century, stasis kind of won out because we weren't moving very quickly anyway? Well, I, that's a very good question and, and not one that I really thought about when I was writing this book many years ago. But I think what happened was that the rise of large business enterprises, uh, railroads, and, uh, you know, huge manufacturing corporations, vertically integrated enterprises, uh, where you had to have a range of control to operate the business. And so uh, that all happened really beginning in the 19th century, uh, where you had these much larger organizations that had then had existed before and they were very successful and people developed new and genuinely uh, innovative and efficient ways of doing things and that led to an idea that well if you can do this at US Steel or General Motors uh you should be able to do it for the whole society and that in fact uh, because they were run by 
uh, the profit motive, uh, these enterprises maybe were a little inefficient and wasteful and duplicative. Uh, competition was seen as wasteful and duplicative. Um, and so that you could uh, do something about that if you could plan the society in general. And so that gives you there are many forms of this in the early 20th century. Um, obviously, you have the full-blown state socialism control, you know, state ownership of the means of production, extreme versions in uh, places like the Soviet Union. Uh, but there were also a much more uh, sort of, I don't know, democracy-friendly versions uh, uh, associated. I mean, Thorsten Veblen, who's famous for the theory of the leisure class, also wrote a book whose title escapes me at the moment, where he contrasted the good engineers with the bad financiers. And the idea was that, you know, if you could just set engineering principles loose on society, you could have uh, a, a a much more efficient and productive society. So that idea was in the air and it came out of real uh, business innovation uh, that just got applied in ways that uh, didn't work. And one of the things that's interesting about sort of the history of liberalism is that before Friedrich Hayek's writing on the use of knowledge in society and the whole socialist calculation debate, and we, I don't want to get into the weeds of that, but what was wrong with that theory of control wasn't obvious. And so a lot of people who were basically liberal uh, became very attracted to socialism, um, because it it seemed like a way of improving the lot of people in and sort of extending the the liberal contract uh, uh, in, in certain ways, and the idea that it was replacing local knowledge and even the knowledge of individual preferences uh, with some kind of necessarily dictatorial, even if it was being done in a democratic way, process was not obvious at, in 1900. Uh, it was not well articulated. I think there were people who sort of understood it intuitively, but it had not really been fully grasped. Well, that raises an interesting distinction, I think, within, within stasism as opposed to dynamism, is you have what you've just described is, is an awfully let's call it ideological or philosophical argument for stasis the the technocrat you had you had these arguments about the way a firm runs and we can analogize that out and we can manage progress and so on and that's like an intellectual approach but a lot of stasis seems to be more of a like almost an aesthetic right approach right, i'm thinking right. of like on and and so you get people like the Wendell Berry or uh, yeah. or Josh Hawley in some of his earlier pre-political career writings is almost making an argument that the ideal America is one that always and forever looks like a Thomas Kincaid painting. <laughs> and yeah. you know, and it's 
or or the like you know modern architecture is bad and what we really need is like the return of the aesthetics of the catholic church to rule us or something like are these distinct things or do they bleed together well, well okay so they they are distinct things i think and historically they're distinct things uh because they're very different reactions to what's called the second industrial revolution that is the rise of these really large enterprises uh railroads being the quintessential one in the 19th century, you also have uh, the arts and crafts movement around William Morris. You have the rise of neo-Gothic architecture, uh, which is initially a very uh, ideologically freighted thing. It is a rejection of uh, industrialism. I mean, the, the irony is that it then becomes just, I mean, I write about this in the substance of style. It becomes a style. And so therefore you get to a point where you have Blair Hall at Princeton University built and named for a railroad magnate in the neo-Gothic style because it associates the university with the great universities of Britain. So it takes on a different different meaning over time. But there is definitely in reaction to uh, industrialism, not only this kind of technocratic argument, which also takes a Marxist form, uh, but there is a sort of medievalist argument as well that we're losing handcraft we're we're losing uh beauty uh the cities are ugly uh they're crowded of course cities were always crowded but uh but uh, but you know coal smoke and factories and it is a kind of ugly transition in many ways uh and that therefore we should go back to a kind of pastoral uh, hierarchical, often Catholic uh, uh, ideal. And that is a kind of reactionary stasis, which is very prominent in uh, a lot of the great literature of the the period, um, uh, not so much in novels, but in poetry. And uh, um, so, yes, they are two distinct very old. I mean, at this point, we're talking, uh, you know, 150 years old. I guess that's not old by human history, but uh, certainly old uh, by American history uh, uh, ideals. And they take different forms. Uh, the ideal American, the American ideal is different from the uh, European ideal, uh, uh, the sort of reactionary ideal. And also, uh, one thing that's different is while there is this kind of Wendell Berry, gent- farmer, slightly medievalist view, uh, uh, there is also in the U.S. a kind of wilderness ideal. Which So in Europe, the cultivated landscape is always uh, or almost always the ideal, uh, whereas in the U.S. you also have a, a notion that untouched by human hands is is ideal and that's less common on the right than on you know on I don't know, I hesitate to call it exactly the left but in the environmental movement well that raises my next question which is do these does this technocratic versus 
reactionary or traditionalist or natural? Does it by and large map onto a left-right spectrum? Like it certainly seems like technocrats are the left and the center left, generally speaking, and the people calling for a, a return to the old ways tend to be on the right. Well, yeah. Part of the point of the future and its enemies is that these things do not really map onto the left and the right. They they cross those divisions. And it it is tr- so that it's just that what people want is is somewhat different. Um and so uh you know conservative technocrats might be more uh, more inclined to regulate land use so that you have single family suburban homes or regulate uh, Im- immigration in, in a technocratic way so that you give priority to people who have a lot of college degrees and professional skills because they're going to be, you know, a Brahmin from India is better than a peasant from Guatemala uh, because we can anticipate that. Um, so I, I mean, I'm just using those as examples. I, I think also we need to, I describe technocracy as an ideological ideal in, in the early 20th century because there was an intellectual movement there. But I don't think it is primarily ideological. I think for many people, it is common sense. Uh, It is common sense that somebody ought to be in charge and people ought to make rules and we ought to control things. And if if, uh, this is dangerous, we should prohibit it. And if it's good, we should subsidize it. I mean, this is the norm in our politics. And that wasn't new in the 20th century. Uh, I mean, things were subsidized and and prohibited <laughs> forever. Um, but it it got this patina of efficiency and rationality and modernity at at in the early 20th century. It took on an ideological uh, air, but it is the norm in our politics. And I, and what and that's one reason I spend a lot of time in the book talking about it. But really what interests me is I, I think of it as the norm. Uh, that is, it's what most of our political discussions are. And, but both reactionaries and dynamists therefore have to make alliances with technocrats in order to sort of get the world they want. So they're kind of the polar opposites of, but uh, the question is who, who, in some ways, the technocrats kind of decide who wins. How, I guess, totalizing are these two are the dynamic versus the static viewpoint, because there are lots of vectors for change. There's technological change, there's social, there's political. And so I'm thinking, you know, like we, we right now refer to say the Trumpist movement as conservative, but populism is on the one hand, very stasis in culture shifting too quickly. I don't like it, make it stop, but it's very politically radical in terms of the the systems that we have in place need to be torn down and replaced. Yeah, so I don't think there's 
I describe them as if they're these silos, uh, but that's just a model. That's not reality. <laughs> that's that's the map, not the landscape. Uh, first of all, most people have elements of all of these things in their thinking, in their intuitions, in in their politics. As you say, it's not just it takes multiple dimensions. So uh, somebody may think uh, that we should, I mean, even within, say, economic regulation, somebody may think that uh, we should let people build houses more freely, but the FDA should regulate really tightly, something like that. um, And and what you... Talking about uh, the the radical institutional aspects of populists of various f- types brings up the issue of of rules, uh, which is one of the things that's the trickiest to uh, understand and to grapple with. Which is how do you think about rules? Let's say you want this kind of dynamism. You want this kind of learning, a bottom-up order without design, trial and error, correction, uh, economic progress, uh, social progress or social learning. Uh, What sort of rules give you that? And, and, there's very much this idea of you need sort of nested rules and you need certain rules that are fundamental and don't change very often. And that's just sort of, you could call that the constitutional order. And those need to be fairly simple and they need to be broadly applicable and they need to allow things like recombinations and people using their own uh, knowledge to make decisions and plans, and have a, there's a chapter about that, <laughs> which I then, in a completely different context, reinvented in the substance of style. Honest to God, I did it from the bottom up. I didn't refer because it was all about sort of neighborhoods where people, you know, the fact that people care about what houses look like, but on the other hand, they want to, they care about their neighbor's house, but they, and they will pay money to live in a planned community. But on the other hand, people want freedom. And how do you think about that? And so there are, there, one of the issues is you need to be able to move from when they're, when rules are very prescriptive, there needs to be there need to be ways to exit. So what you're seeing in this populist uh, kind of upsurge um, is a notion that the rules that we think of as not changing very much, not that that, that the sort of stable institutions, the liberal institutions uh, that that govern societies are barriers to what populists want. And so, therefore, they need to be taken down. Uh, and so, that is um, that does become a radical kind of move. Um, and and one of the misperceptions that was in lots of reviews of the book, and so was the idea that 
dynamism equals change. And I'm saying all change is good. Well, first of all, even in the process of dynamism, that is bottom-up change, not all change is good. It's an experimental process. Sometimes you do things, whether it's you start a company or you change uh, you change your living arrangements, and it's a bad idea. It doesn't work. And that's why we need criticism and competition. And, and that's all, that's part of the process. How do you handle then if if the goal is a we want a dynamic society because it produces all of these? Is, I mean, the book is full of all the wonderful benefits that come out of a a dynamic society. But at the same time, the the people who are fans of stasis, yes, a lot of them take it like way too far in a reactionary direction. But there is something fundamentally true to the notion of wanting things to be somewhat stable and familiar. You know, I just three weeks ago moved my whole family from Washington, D.C. to Colorado. And we all know like moving is incredibly stressful and not just because of like all the logistics you have to deal with, but like uprooting yourself is is deeply stressful and takes a long time to get reestablished. And a dynamic society, we're not, I mean, lots of us more people move in a dynamic society than they have in the past, but but the world around us is changing too in a way that feels like the same stress that I have with moving. And so people want, like, my life is settled and is going to look roughly tomorrow the way it did today. Like there's there is something very like human and understandable about that. And so how do you how do you get the effects of dynamism without everyone constantly feeling like they're being uprooted? Right, right. This is a really good question, a really hard question. Um, part of it goes back to this idea of, of nested rules and also nested commitments. The, one of the, the important aspects of dynamist rules is that they allow for commitments. Uh, that you can say, uh, you can make contracts of various kinds to use the term, but it could also be marriage. Uh, It it could be, I'm going to live in this town and I'm going to be involved in uh, civic institutions and and volunteer institutions. I'm going to put down roots here. That said, one of the difficult things is that one person's stability is another person's um, uh, sort of is an intrusion on another person's plans often. Um, so, for example, I mean, I write a lot about housing, and there's not there's some about housing in the book, but there's not as much as I would probably put if I were writing it today. And one thing that we see in Los Angeles where I live is uh, 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 there are a lot of veto players whenever you want to build anything. And they are people who want their neighborhood to stay the same. Uh, The result, one result of that is that people who have grown up in Los Angeles uh, the children of people who lived here cannot live here anymore because it's too expensive. Um, and so that's this kind of, I want stability. Oh, but wait a minute. 
I'd also like to see my grandchildren. <laughs> oh, but now they live in Texas because they couldn't afford to live here. Uh, so it, there's often trade-offs with with issues of of sort of trying to make stability, but human life in inherently changes. I mean, generations come and go. We grow older. Uh, people have children, et cetera. So there is a certain amount of change that always is going to happen. Um, the, the But there is a, a highly non-ideological issue, uh, which comes up, in fact, in, in my most recent book, The Fabric of Civilization, in the context of the original Luddites. So the Luddites were not the original Luddites were not ideologues. <laughs> they were not stasists uh, who wanted to keep uh, medieval ways because they liked the Middle Age, what the Middle Ages represented to their intellect. They were weavers who hand weavers who had prospered from the invention of mechanical spinning which gave them ample supplies of thread. So they had prospered because of the technological uh, and economic upheavals of a generation earlier. And now they were losing their jobs to power looms. And so they were mad. They were stressed. And uh, they... And at that time, losing your job was not like losing your job in 21st century America. Losing your job meant your children might starve. I mean, <laughs> so there was a reason to be upset. Um, and, and they engaged in both nonviolent civic activity, petitioning parliament and that sort of thing, and also violent riots and smashing looms and, and that sort of thing. And the government said, no, <laughs> you don't get to choose. Uh, the and, and there was a technocratic aspect of that, of uh, which is they said, look, this is going to be good for society. It's going to create new jobs and new industries. It's going to make Britain more prosperous, right? You know, against its rivals, uh, all of the, all of these kinds of things, and so power looms went ahead, and some of the luddites got deported to Australia, um, the more violent ones. That is really important in the history of economic prosperity, in the uh, and and the people who were the the children and grandchildren and great 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 grandchildren of those people are far better off in basically every respect uh, than their ancestors. Uh, but it was a true, genuine, painful transition, uh, and I. I don't know what my prescription would have been other than back then, other than let let this go forward. Um, in a richer society, there are things that can be done with redistribution to ease those transitions. Um, another thing that I think we don't emphasize nearly enough uh, in the U.S. today is the traditional American thing of of moving to different parts of the country? It's there's considerable evidence has become that people are more locked into place than they used to be, and and that makes certain things more difficult, uh, particularly if you know, 
if you are somebody who is living in Detroit, say. Um, it might be better if you could move to Colorado or North Carolina, um, but you don't have the money because moving is not just disruptive, it's expensive to do so. Uh, and there may be other barriers like licensing regulations or uh, that, that sort of thing. But, but the main barrier is, aside from the psychological barrier, is the financial, financial one. So uh, I, I think that that's the sort of thing you need to think about from a policy point of view. But you're right. People don't like people like change. They like the benefits of change, but only up to a point. There's another side to it too. I think I kept, as I was rereading the book and prep for our conversation, um, I kept thinking there's a, there's a moral imperative of dynamism when you think about it in a social context, because the story you just told is, a, is an economic and a production one and the change the disruption that can come from changes in you know in economics and we see this all the time like a lot of the reactionary movement right now is about we're losing the the old lifestyle of working in the factory in the small town and supporting your family at a middle class level on one salary that's gone away that's an economic story but but i think a lot of what we're seeing today uh, from illiberal sides is about social change and it's about so the the anti-trans backlash is in a lot of respects about like these my conceptions of gender and gender roles are there are people who are setting those aside living in ways that are contrary to them but we also see the traditional family is under attack right and it's not under attack in the sense of someone is coming and trying to like just tear apart my traditional family but that there are people who are living in non-traditional right, ways right. and it makes me uncomfortable and and in that case the you know it seems harder to justify the stasis worldview from a moral standpoint because what you're saying is often People who were traditionally marginalized or oppressed are now able to get outside of, are now centered in a way that they didn't used to be, are gaining privilege in a way that they didn't used to be, um, have status in a way that they didn't used to have, or are able to express themselves and, and author their own identities in ways that they were. And, and I don't like that that makes me uncomfortable we need to shut it down we need to punish corporations that are too woke in like what they're expressing or what they're putting in movies and television and that one seems harder to say yeah you've got a point because telling other people they can't have dynamic self-identities isn't the kind of thing that we should necessarily correct for or compromise with Yes and no. I mean, if you, the way you put it, sure. Um, but it's also the case that a lot of these fights are between two sides, each of which wants to force the other one to adopt its worldview uh, and to pay obeisance to its worldview. 
so that it's not just that I have to um, tolerate someone who has, uh, uh, you know, whether they believe that everyone who doesn't go doesn't believe in Jesus will go to hell, or whether they believe that uh, uh, someone with male genitalia can be considered a woman. I mean, those are two worldviews that you can live in a society where people hold those th- hold those views, and and we just kind of tolerate them. And it's like I I don't care if you believe Mercury is in retrograde, makes your computer go crazy. You know, I think it's stupid, but <laughs> but okay, sure, what the hell? Um, you know, we can treat them like that, or we can have fights where everybody has to get on the same page. And a lot of what we're negotiating now is what is it where everybody has to be on the same page? And this is the great fights that led to liberalism in the first place were the religious wars where there was an assumption that unless everybody agreed, that unless everybody in a society was of the same faith, the society would not be strong. And so they kept fighting over, obviously this is potted history, but they kept fighting over that until they were exhausted and said, let's have liberalism instead. <laughs> I mean, that's that's you know, oversimplifying much. Um, so the question, a lot of these fights today are about how do you accommodate when people have radically different worldviews live in the same society, have to know about each other's worldviews. I mean, one of the differences today versus when I was growing up in the, you know, evangel in the Bible Belt, um, is that everybody sees everything. <laughs> uh, it used to be, I mean, the people I went to college with at Princeton, for the most part, I mean, I could have been, I, I was a liberal, I was raised a liberal Presbyterian, but the 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 assumptions I made about the people around me and, uh, you know, uh, uh, were, I might as well have been from Mars. Uh, it, I could understand uh, Renaissance literature in a way uh, because it's steeped in a, relig- a, a religious society in a way that most of the people that I went to school with couldn't because they had never been in a place where everybody was religious. Uh, I mean, and really religious, not just nominally. Um, and, and, and also that affects like jokes and stuff. Like uh, supposedly my freshman roommate got mad. She told somebody because I had said she was going to hell. And considering I didn't believe in hell, that was impossible, but I might have I must have made some kind of joke that anybody in my who knew me in high school would have understood. Um, anyway, this is a long a long way of saying that I I think that y- you're right and this goes to the issue of commitments and being able to carve out your own life um uh that some of these fights are about that. Although we've seen one of the things that happened since I wrote The Future and Its Enemies is when I wrote The Future and Its Enemies, I had the I I was for gay marriage, but that was 
so locked. But that was way ahead of the curve, you know. They and and it became a kind of cons- it, it it advanced partly because of this desire to have a kind of commitment and conservatism while accepting different sexualities, different. Um, so I, I see this as a constant, uh, constant negotiation and uh, going and, and I also see the economic ideals as not being completely disconnected from it. So when people talk about the good old days, let, let's go back to the good old days when you could work in a factory and have a union job and uh, raise a family on one income and uh, all of that. Well, first of all, I'm from South Carolina, and that wasn't the case then. I mean, even if you were white, th- that people were poor, okay? And they could, I mean, yes, you could do that. You could raise a family on one income uh, if you were like an engineer, <laughs> but, but not if you worked in a textile mill. Uh, you would have both parents working in the textile mill and probably the teenage kids as well. And, um, and that's, again, if you were white. Uh, if you were black, you were even worse off. Uh, so that there is a kind of centering, as you say, of a particular, uh, not only ethnically uh, narrow experience, but also even regionally narrow experience um, in in that kind of nostalgia. And I think that remembering who's left out uh, is an important part that, that goes to this issue of knowledge, uh, of, of the knowledge problem, of the idea that dynamism allows people to work on to operate on on their local knowledge and it it allows people who might not be included in the big top down view to force themselves to be included because they just go through life and and do their thing. Yeah, and I think part of that is that it's not necessarily stasis or not necessarily always stasis versus dynamism or change but it's about it's about pace of change and and this is where the point that you made about we're all aware of what each other's doing in a way that we didn't used to be makes this because there's always been there always are subcultures that a subculture adopts a handful of things and then innovates on them very quickly and becomes like weird and pops up and so like you know they have suddenly everyone's goth for a little while and goth is like very different. And then the pace of change in this shows up in fashion pretty frequently or me trying to keep up with my middle schoolers (laughs) slang or so on. Um, But, but that pace of change it with, with the social media stuff in particular, we end up in these situations where you don't even think that you are necessarily like that your subculture is a subculture anymore. You think it is the dominant culture because you've cultivated your Twitter following and everyone you know online knows to talk this way or that these terms are passe or shouldn't be used anymore or whatever. And then you, you assume that's what everyone knows and everyone talks about. And so I don't even know that in a lot of cases it is you saying, 
I want to force my subculture's views right. on everyone else. It's more just you assume that that's what all of the views yeah, are. Yeah, it's like and my joke about you're going to hell. I mean, which I it's like I assume that you know how I mean it. Oh, wait a minute, you don't because you don't come from that subculture. And it used to be that these subcultures were. The mainstream media, the New York Times, Time Magazine is there, did not know, and even Gallup polling, did not know there was such a thing as born-again Christians until Jimmy Carter, like, I mean, and they were a huge percentage of the population. It's just that they weren't the people who worked at the New York Times. They weren't the people who lived in New York for the most part. I and and so uh, partly because I have this weird background of having lived in a lot of different parts of the country, and uh, um, I'm I'm more aware of of how many subcultures there are. <laughs> um, and and my Facebook uh, group uh, people, you know, my Facebook friends come from all of them <laughs> pretty much. Um, but I, I think you're absolutely right that pe- part of what happens is people assume that their norms are, are universal or should be universal and that therefore people who violate them are bad people. Um, and there's, and there are rewards for making those assumptions. Uh, there are rewards in terms of attention. There are rewards in terms of, you know, you go girl uh, or, or whatever. Uh, and that has been corrosive. Um, I, and I, th- I think that it's not new in human history, but as you say, the there has been a, a sort of an acceleration of it and the idea that you could know about these horrible other people who think differently from you is uh, more likely. And and you don't just know about them, you probably get a distorted picture of them because it's being filtered, filtered through people who are spinning it or selectively representing it in a way that maximizes uh, not only its strangeness, but its evil. Yeah, and I think we also, too, don't necessarily appreciate the pace at which things change and that what becomes accepted in our subcultures. You, know, I, you mentioned, like, you wrote this book. This book was published in 1998, I think yeah, it was. Yeah, right. So I was uh, writing and, it in, like, 1996, 97. Yeah. And, I mean, I was, I was in high school in the 90s, and thinking about so gay marriage you mentioned gay marriage like how dramatic the change on like exception uh, accepting of gay relationships and gay marriage has happened that when when i was in high school is what was it ellen coming out on her sitcom it's like a we're gonna have a gay character on television was this huge like this was national news yeah, everyone right. was talking about it whereas now 30 years later it's just like so what there's a gay there's a gay character like it happens very quickly and i wonder well this makes me think like how much of this is about and going back to the rules to ambiguity versus clarity 
like that people want to know how things are and how they're going to be and <clears throat> and that a lot of like rapid change is about it's not it's not constant it's not it's not uniform it is experimentation and competing views and figuring out which is the right one or which is the acceptable one but all of that messiness is means that things are ambiguous and that what we want is clarity we want to know okay this is the rule that i'm going to have to follow tomorrow this is what's going to be acceptable i'm not going to get called out for this i'm willing to change but i want to know what it's going to be um and that dynamism is inherently ambiguous well i think that is part of it i think people people do want to know people do want to be able to make their own plans and structure their own lives and and in a way that it is going to work for them i would argue that you're better off uh in a, a world where people aren't constantly making new rules to, from their plans to run your plans i mean that's one of the big dynamis ideas but the other thing when you were talking about people want clarity I, it made me think about how people – so one of the things that I've written about over the years is clothing sizes and, and the problems of fit. And, and bear with me. This is relevant. <laughs> okay. So people think, tend to think, that it would be better if there were specific clothing sizes, that if you knew that a size 8 dress, every size 8 dress – was for a 35-inch bust and a 28-inch waist and a, I'm making these up and a 40-inch hips or something like that. That would be great because everything would be the same. You would know exactly what you were getting. You could work. It would actually be terrible. Uh, and there's a reason that sizes in the 40s, there uh, there the clothing manufacturers, the catalog, the catalog companies actually went to the government and said, could you please establish some standard sizes? And they did. But almost as soon as they were established, different brands started not complying with them because it wasn't required. It wasn't a regulation. It was just a, you can establish these standards. And the reason is that people's bodies come in different proportions. Even two people who are the same height and weight, will one will have longer legs, one will have shorter arms, one will have a bigger waist, the other will have bigger hips, et cetera. And so what happens is brands develop sort of their own fit models and their own sizes. The lack of clarity actually makes it more possible for people to find what fits. And I think that is an analogous uh, an analogy to one aspect of dynamism that is the fact that there isn't a single model that everyone uh must comply with makes it more likely that people can structure their own lives in in meaningful ways. Now that said, this goes back to this issue of nested rules and what I mean is there is no doubt that hammering down on people because they have 
they express views that were perfectly normal 10 minutes ago, or worse yet, they use a term in a non-pejorative way, they think, and suddenly it's turned out that it's now pejorative. Um, this is not good. <laughs> this is a kind of enforcement of treating as fundamental rules things that should be uh, sort of flexible and, and, and adjustable and tolerant. And there is this idea of tolerance. When we talk about tolerance as a liberal value, a liberal virtue, uh, but there's also, think about mechanical tolerances. Uh, I think a society needs that kind of, uh, one cer- that kind of tolerance as well. Uh, that allows uh, for a certain amount of differentiation and and uh, pliability uh, that allows things to work and allows people uh, not to be constantly punished. Zero tolerance is a bad idea. It, it, anytime people are having zero tolerance, you're almost always going to be running into trouble. <laughs> so you published this book 24 years ago. And I think, as I said at the beginning, I think the the framework and the thesis that you articulated in it is is really powerful and helpful for understanding things. But the political landscape and the cultural landscape looks rather different now than it did in the '90s. So, looking at the the threats to dynamism that we see today, the rise of a liberalism. I guess, what are the lessons that we should draw from the stasis versus dynamist framework for countering those threats today, or at least understanding them in a way that may prove helpful to ameliorating them? Yeah, well, there are different forms of illiberalism around the world, and there are different reasons that people back them. One of the things that is striking in the rise of Trump in the US is that one component of the people who voted for him, I don't know whether this would be true if he runs again, because the whole January 6th thing alters this somewhat, but many of the people who voted for him were kind of frustrated dynamists. That is, they were people who are really sick of technocracy. They're really sick of being told what they can and cannot do. They're really sick of the fact that it's hard to build things, that it's hard to create, especially with atoms rather than bits. And uh, I mean, Peter Thiel might be an example of a high profile example, but there are lots of like just little guys who own plumbing companies or or whatever uh, who are in that category. Um, And the notion that you need to knock over the table to uh, to effect change, I think some of that comes from this idea that people are the technocracy has tied down ordinary people like Gulliver and and the uh, uh, Lilliputians. So I think one thing that needs to happen again, I don't know that this applies in Hungary, but it's certainly, uh, I think it's applicable in the U.S., is that technocrats 
uh, need to get their act together, at least some of them, and need to get a little more dynamism in their heads. And you're seeing some of this among intellectuals like Ezra Klein and, and uh, Matt Iglesias, sort of on the center left. Um, uh, they need to, and you definitely see it in the issues around housing. Um, so that's one thing, because dynamists can't do it alone. And we we need allies, and we need to peel off technocrats who will support many of whom are liberals or think of themselves as liberals in the sense that they're not illiberal. Um, and so that that's that's one thing. As far as the the people who really you know want to go back to the Middle Ages. I mean, part of this is you need to tell different stories. And this is hard. Culture is hard. Uh, I, I mean, this is not a libertarian show, but one of the things that I say to libertarians and also to conservatives, that they always act like they talk about culture the way leftists talk about markets, as if there's one giant lever. And if I could just get my hands on that lever and pull, I could make everything the way I want it. And, and that's a fallacy in markets, and it's a fallacy in culture as well. It's a dynamic, whether you like it or not, it's a dynamic process. Um and so the I think part of I hadn't really thought about this, but in a way, the fabric of civilization, my latest book, which is a the story of world history through the story of textiles, uh, one thing it does is it says the world is always changing, um, even in the periods where it changes slowly, it changes. And there are always uh, people who are pushing uh, against the established order, whether it's economic or or cultural or or whatever. And another thing that it says quite explicitly um, in the discussion of uh, of traditional clothing and and if somebody goes to my Substack, you can see I, I posted this as as a something uh, is that people don't generally want to make a choice between tr tradition slash identity and modernity slash progress. They want both. And given control over their lives, they will find ways to incorporate both, to hold on to what they value in terms of their identity and tradition and to uh, get the benefits of modernity and, and liberalism. And, um, and I think many people who really like change don't fully appreciate that. It was definitely not appreciated at the beginning of the 20th century in the sort of technocratic move that we talked about earlier. Um, but if you look, for example, the example I use is, is the, the, the way uh, indigenous women in Guatemala dress. Now they can buy jeans and t-shirts just like everybody else, but they choose to dress in traditional garments, except they're not really traditional. <laughs> I mean, are, they've changed in a lot of different ways. Uh, the, the blouse, the daily blouse is made in a factory. It's made out of polyester. It's not woven on a, a hand loom. Uh, uh, but it still looks Maya. 
because that identity is important. And I think there is a universalizing element of, of liberalism that wants everyone to be a rootless cosmopolitan. And even those of us who basically are rootless cosmopolitans aren't really. I mean, we actually do have roots. I, mean, I, I am very dedicated to living in Los Angeles. I really am from the South. Uh, whether I like it or not, it shaped me in certain ways. I have certain ties. And liberalism needs to understand that that's how people are, that they care about uh, where they come from. They care about things that are passed down in their families. They care about their community ties. And that is perfectly compatible with liberalism and dynamism. Uh, but the manifestations of that will change. And this is why the great success the great social success story uh, of the past 25 years is uh, from a, a sort of a liberal social point of view is the story of gay marriage because it says, yes, gay people are different in certain ways, but they are embedded in families. They want to be embedded in families, not every single one, but that's, but in the sense that most people want to be embedded in families. The mere fact that you have a sexual orientation toward the same sex does not mean that you want to leave that all behind. It means you want to have Thanksgiving and you want to, you want, you want to get married and you want to have kids and all of that that is part of normal human life or, you know, since time immemorial can take a slightly different turn and still be compatible with these very ancient conservative institutions, which, by the way, have taken a zillion different forms over human history. Thank you for listening to Reactionary Minds, a project of the unpopulist. If you want to learn more about the rise of a liberalism and the need to defend a free society, check out theunpopulist.substack.com.